0: Coming up this hour, does it actually matter where COVID originated from? And then we're going to de- talk about how do you deal with regret in your life? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends. Happy Thursday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian I'm Really glad to have you with us today. I want to start with a hard story here, Aubrey, and I, I don't have much wisdom or any reflection necessarily on this, but do want to acknowledge the the uh, mass shooting that happened at a California rail yard yesterday, as a transit worker opened fire on his coworkers, killing nine people uh, before killing himself, and and it's just a tragic story. The the real part of the story that that you want to focus on is those whose lives have been lost and those whose uh, lives have been kind of turned upside down mm-hmm. because they lost somebody that they loved or cared for. But I, I, I when I think about myself, when I read stories like this, Aubrey, I, I'm shocked by how little this I even notice these anymore. Like I, I think back to when we were younger, if someone had killed nine people in a shooting like that would have been breaking news on every channel, all this kind of stuff. And now it kind of feels I, I feel almost guilty saying this. It almost feels commonplace. And that's what's wrong with our culture right now.
2: Oh, goodness gracious. I yeah, it almost feels commonplace like this is becoming such a regularly reoccurring event that two things are happening. Like you said, we're almost growing numb to it unless, of course, we're right there impacted by it in that community or know someone. But I also think the the rate at which these seem to be happening is devastating. And we have got to be on our knees asking that the Lord would intervene. And I also think we got to be writing our representatives for change. Like this is scary, scary stuff. It makes me scared to send my kids to school because of the increase in school shootings, too. And I I think we, yeah, we literally Christians have to be on our knees asking the Lord to intervene in these situations because it's getting nuts.
0: Totally is and and I get like the complexities of the issues and this and that maybe I don't even get it, but man, it's gotta break our hearts every time these mm-hmm. happen, yeah,
3: and, uh, yeah so
0: just wanted to acknowledge that off the top here, okay, President Biden yesterday uh told Americans that he has ordered u s intelligence agencies. To report in 90 days on whether the coronavirus, whether the COVID-19 virus originated not in animals and spread to humans, but might have escaped from a Chinese laboratory in Mm. Wuhan, China. And this is uh, Dr. Fauci brought this up. This kind of uh, lit lit up the Internet yesterday and kind of created, I think, rightfully so, uh, a lot of backlash. This kind of idea as to where did the COVID-19 pandemic begin because it has political implications. It says here at this article I'm reading at home and abroad, uh, it, it, you know, President Trump and others were, were floating this as a possibility months ago, and they were called conspiracy theorists. They were called all sorts of things. Uh, I have all sorts of thoughts on this. But but when you see President Biden and Dr. Fauci now saying, yeah, it actually might have started the way that mm-hmm. we've said there's no chance it started. The, what does that do? Are you like, man? There's credibility issues there. What What do you do with that?
2: Um, I I I don't know how I actually think about the issue at large. What worries me is that, um, and I'm going to take this a little bit different. Uh, but then let's come back to what you're talking about here. What worries me is more for the Asian American community, because what we saw every time President Trump talked about how this was the China virus or whatever language he would use that was so inflammatory, it had violent repercussions for the Asian American community. I mean, we saw racism increase like 164% because of this narrative. And so I'm more worried. I actually want to know where it came from. I think that's Good leadership, I think that's mm-hmm. right to do this investigation the outcome i I hope there's good leadership as far as the outcome and how we treat one another because of this
0: yeah I totally get that i I think when thinking about the leadership and this and that I, this is yet another part of this um you know, 15, 16 month narrative in which there's been just mixed messaging. Right.
2: Totally. Totally. Anybody,
0: anybody um, a year ago or six months ago who suggested that this could have come out of a lab uh, was shouted down as conspiracy theorists. I I always had trouble with and maybe in the end they decide this is actually still the 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 most likely way. I always had trouble believing it happened because somebody ate a bat, right? Like Exactly.
2: Especially when there was a lab, like right there, you kind of go, uh, wait a second. (laughs)
0: That's the fact that it happened to be right next to a lab. But, but I think this raises a bigger thing about credibility of leadership. When we come Hmm. out and we make definitive statements, maybe when we don't know on the one hand, I'm like, okay, admit when maybe there's a mistake or new information uh, but there were, there's literally now clips of Dr. Fauci and others, um, just kind of talking down to the people who said, no, I think this could have started in a way that now they're saying it might have started. I worry about the the decreased credibility of our leaders around the coronavirus, around COVID-19. And I'm not suggesting nefarious reasons. I know a lot of people out there do suggest nefarious reasons as to why things work. I actually tend not to believe that these were for nefarious reasons, but I would have liked in the beginning as leaders for them to go, you know what? We don't know where this is from. We yeah, there's all yeah. sorts of different possibilities. But the fact that uh, all the way from the top at President Trump to others have been kind of yelled down as conspiracy theorists uh, because they, they questioned whether this came from that or not. And now they're making kind of a, a, a 180 and going, no, actually, I think there's a good chance that it happened this way. Don't you worry that now every time you do this as a leader, it becomes harder to get people to follow you in the future because they go – Well, maybe you don't know what you're talking about this time or maybe.
2: (laughs) I mean, right. I definitely think that's true where I feel a little bit of compassion is like you and I are leaders in a much smaller way than these folks are leaders. And like we do mess up. And we do sometimes think we know what we're talking about, and we don't. And so I, I, what I always admire is a leader who goes, you know what, I misspoke there. I have new information now that I didn't have before, and I was wrong. That, to me, would increase the credibility. But if, yeah, you just sort of pretend like the past didn't happen, and those things weren't said, and now you're acting. Yeah, I mean, you know, it begins to feel like uh, hypocritical.
0: Absolutely. So that, that's my worry too, as well. Like, you know, before it was, you don't need a mask. Then you need two masks. Then you yeah. need one mask. And yeah, and no, it started with a bat. And now maybe it did come from this lab and you start to go, well, I so much of our struggle in our culture right now. Uh, I know we feel it was, so we talk about it with social media. We had a guest on the other day is who do I believe? Like yeah. at what point? Yeah. I was talking to someone just the other day who was talking about vaccines and they they believed what I thought were some pretty crazy things. But our conversation kind of ended with, I don't know, you You believe the people that you've chosen to believe. I, I believe these people. And yeah, yeah. I, I, it's not one of these like, oh, just create your own truth. But there are so many narratives going on. And then the people that you wanted to believe are kind of changing their I don't know. It's really hard. And so
2: I feel like uh, hindsight is what we have to offer. Like, there are no hot takes when it comes to the coronavirus. We are going to, it's going to be 20, 30 years. And then we'll go, oh, that's what happened then. You
0: know? That's what happened as we're all still wearing our masks, though. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, coming up next, we're excited to be joined by Heather Case. She is the founder and CEO of an organization called One Purse. We're going to talk to Heather next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today on this Thursday afternoon. And we are thrilled to be joined by the founder and CEO of an exciting organization called One Purse. Her name is Heather Case. Heather, thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you guys so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. We're really glad to have you with us. Hey, before we jump in and learn about your organization and the 1000 Bag Challenge and some other things, why don't you just introduce yourself so our audience can get to know you a little bit.
3: Absolutely. So my husband Don and I live in Orlando, Florida, with our four children, although my one son is now in college in Buffalo. Um we I spent fifteen years in the finance industry before the Lord called me into this work of one purse. And it has now been um become my life's work and, and ministry and um I give all that I can to doing what he's called me to do. And I'm excited to share some of that with you guys today.
2: Heather, I am so excited that you're here because what our listeners, I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit and share with our listeners that you and I are in grad school together at Wheaton College. We're in we the are. Propel Women program. Yeah. So I feel like I'm having my friend over for coffee right now. So thanks for joining us. <laughs> oh, but we you. have you here, not just because you're my friend and we're in grad school together, but because of your amazing organization, One Purse. So can you talk to us a little bit about what One Purse is and the mission of the organization? Absolutely. So we empower survivors of
3: sex trafficking to build healthy and sustainable lives. And really what that means, if you look at the continuum of care to trafficking survivors, um, we see it sort of in stages. And the stage that most might be aware of is what might come through your news channel or something that you would read in an article is often like the identification phase where um, a survivor either escapes or through law enforcement is helped out of that circumstance. And then they go into kind of a stabilization phase. If there's been drugs or, you know, something that they're needing to detox from, that would be the next phase. And then restoration. And there's a ton of wonderful organizations doing restoration work, uh, trauma-informed care and therapy being given to survivors. And then we would say they reach kind of the transition to thrive space. And that is really our focus as an organization. Um, What many people don't know is that there's a very high rate of re-exploitation of survivors. And sometimes that's kind of hard to understand. But um, if you look at the circumstances that were present in their life that kind of placed them in a vulnerable position to be exploited and trafficked to begin with, if we don't address those issues um, and we don't help them to establish economic stability and determine what's next in their life, um, they're very much at risk of being re-exploited again. And so that's our focus as an organization. And we do that through a couple different programs. We have a wonderful scholarship program that we provide tuition books, computers, whatever they need to take their next vocational or educational step. We have just recently, um, due to COVID and some transitions through COVID, um, really been able to do something wonderful, which is we've launched a work therapy program called the Repurpose Project. We've hired our first survivor, and we'll be hiring another survivor this summer. And then we also provide mentorship. And so, yeah, that's kind of what we do.
0: Oh, That's fabulous. Heather, I'm wondering how it all started, like for you, not just the organization, but you said this isn't what you've always been doing. How did this become a passion of yours? I'd love to hear that story a little bit.
3: Absolutely. So um, really, a call of the Lord is like the simplest answer to that. But mm-hmm. um, I did spend 15 years in the finance industry, came home after my twins, who are my youngest, were um, a year old. So now four children at home, I was not looking for something to do. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> um, but I had come into an awareness of some issues, um, some, you know, vulnerabilities among women and children. And one day, I was shopping in an upscale consignment store, I found a purse that I fell in love with. But now that purse was not in my stay at home budget. Uh, (laughs) So I left the purse. And uh, But the purse didn't leave me. I went back and visited it several times. And on one of those visits, the Lord pricked my heart with this thought that for the amount of money I was considering spending on that one purse, I could change someone else's life. Hmm. And um, from there, it's really just been a journey of Of following him into this work, I didn't honestly know that I would end up working in this anti-trafficking space. Um, It was kind of a part of peeling the onion of my own story. I'm not a trafficking survivor, but I was um, a domestic violence victim at a young point in my um, late teens, early 20s. And so as I began to work with trafficking survivors, they were just the one that wouldn't let me go. My heart Mm -hmm. was very tender for their needs just because it touched some places in my own story, so yeah, that's how I got started in the work.
4: Mm-hmm. That's
2: amazing, Heather. And how long has the organization been around? Ten years. We celebrate wow. ten
3: years this year. I cannot believe it. Um, yeah, and I would just say, don't despise small beginnings.
4: Yeah, <laughs> hey, because man. you
3: know, it was it was in my house for five years, then we were in a little small office for four. We've just Moved into the One Purse Dream Studio. God's blessed us so much um, over the the last year with expansion and growth. And um, yeah, and so we're in an exciting season.
0: That's awesome. And now we, we want to talk about something called the Thousand Bag Challenge. Tell us about the Thousand Bag Challenge and how people can get involved as well.
3: Absolutely, the Thousand Bag Challenge. So basically, women donate, they're gently loved designer purses. And women will say, do they have to be designer purses? Well, they have to have a brand name because what we do with the purses um, is we resell them. And that's actually the work therapy. So the survivor that's working for us, those bags come in, she cleans them if they need to be cleaned. She photographs them, she describes them, she uploads them to our e-commerce store. And when those bags sell, those proceeds are then used to fund our scholarships and more employment. So through these thousand bags that women are donating to us, we will be in able to employ another survivor for a year. We're able Mm. to convert it into those resources. So bags can be mailed to us. Our office is in Orlando. Um, Our address is 213 North Mills Avenue, orlando florida 32801 and we've had bags coming in from across the country and we're just super excited it's an important goal for us to achieve and we would love your listeners to jump in and support us in this endeavor and i would also say if they don't carry designer bags that's okay they can be part of helping us they can go on our website and shop from the bags. Um, OnePurse.org. Click that shop button. They can pick out a gently loved bag for themselves, or they can just share it with their friends. If, you know, If they're not carriers of brand name bags, most of us know someone who is.
2: That's fantastic. Again, that's OnePurse.org. You can go there to purchase a bag or find other ways to support the work of OnePurse. Heather, would you say the address one more time if people do have designer bags that they want to donate to you? Absolutely. It's 213
3: North Mills Avenue. That's Orlando, Florida, 32801. And the address is also on our website.
0: That's awesome. That website is OnePurse.org. OnePurse.org. What a uh, exciting endeavor that all of us can be a part of. And so we'd encourage you to go to OnePurse.org, pass it on uh, to friends and family as well as they're doing such amazing work. Again, Heather Case is the founder and the CEO of, of 1purse. This is uh it really impressive. Thanks you took a little bit of time out from vacation so we're glad that you <laughs> <met> <laughs> Yeah, thanks for doing that. some time with us and I uh, hope you have a great Memorial Day weekend and most of all we hope the 1000 bag challenge goes great for you guys.
3: Awesome. Thank you so much for the gift of this opportunity to share. Appreciate it so much.
0: Absolutely. Again, we'd encourage you that that is OnePurse.org. That's the word 1 O N E 1 purse org. We'd encourage you to go check that out. Glad that you're joining us today here on The Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Hope you're having a great day. All right, Aubrey, I want to talk about regret, but I found this story to be Fascinating. I'd never heard this story before. So let me tell you this story. Okay. Uh, and then you can tell me, A, did you ever hear this before? But B, uh, what would you do if you were in any of these guys' shoes? So I didn't realize May, May 22nd, which just passed a couple days ago, is annual Bitcoin Pizza Day. Uh, We've talked before how Bitcoin, other cryptocurrency, neither of us understand how it works.
2: (laughs) So confusing, right?
0: But a lot of people have made a lot of money from it. And so here's the story. In May of 2010, a California student named Jeremy Sturdevant, then 19 years old, noticed a bizarre request on a cryptocurrency internet forum. He could receive... 10,000 Bitcoins at the time, was reportedly valued at $41 in exchange for the delivery of two large pizzas to a Florida resident by the name of Laszlo uh, Hanyaks. Uh, So Sturtevant filled the order, sending two large pizzas uh, from Papa John's, not even like expensive pizzas, uh, (laughs) a (laughs) transaction that would then become the first physical purchase made with Bitcoin in history.
2: Oh, wow. Okay.
0: But this guy didn't then save the Bitcoins for the future. Instead, he then used it on travel. He spent it on travel. All right. So here's the story. Today, the 10,000 Bitcoins, which A, bought the first guy two large pizzas, and B, bought the second guy a trip. Those 10,000 Bitcoins right now would be worth $365 million. (laughs) Stop it. So in essence, the first guy, Laszlo Hanyak's, there's a picture of him with the two pizzas. He bought two Papa John's <sighs> pizzas for, for three hundred and sixty five million dollars. And the other guy the other guy took a little trip. He took a little trip and it turned out to be a three hundred and sixty five million dollar trip. Now, uh Hanyaks get listen to this, it gets worse. He went on to spend a hundred thousand Bitcoin this way, just trying to have people send him pizzas and stuff. He said, all I wanted was some free pizzas. Do you (laughs) want to know how much a hundred thousand (gasps) Bitcoin is worth right now? Oh no, how much? How much? $3.8 billion. Stop it.
2: Are you kidding?
0: And that is what he spent on pizzas in the alone in the summer of 2010.
2: (laughs) Unbelievable.
0: So, uh So, Aubrey, obviously in 2010, nobody had any kind of feel what this Bitcoin thing was. It reminds me of the Apple story, the guy who sold off his shares for like five grand that would be worth (laughs) a couple billion dollars now. (laughs) Uh, But first of all, before we get into the more serious topic, if you were either of these guys, would you be able to laugh at this or would you just be like – in the fetal position in the corner going, I don't know what to do.
2: I mean, you'd have to laugh to keep from being in the fetal position, right? Like I feel like my, my, all of my empathy buzzers are going off. Like I feel so bad for them. Like, Oh, I, in my soul, I would just feel gutted. But you'd have to laugh. Like you couldn't do you couldn't do anything about it. Like you would just have to be like, Well, I was a dumb person, <laughs> you
0: know. He goes on to say, uh, the reason he did it was because he didn't think Bitcoin would ever be worth anything. So he said, I wanted to do the pizza thing because to me it was free pizza. I none totally. of, I paid for any it, it of wasn't he a college
2: student at the time you said so like, yeah, college <laughs> yes. students love free pizza. <laughs>
0: Oh, man, this is the, and not even good pizza. It was uh, Papa John's. OK,
2: uh, but let me
0: let me spin this pastorally, okay? Because, uh, you know, a lot of us, we don't have regrets over they lost 300 plus million dollars. or 3. <laughs> right, 8 right. Billion dollars, like almost that's laughable. Like you can kind of look at that and go, who knew, whatever. Uh, and it's not our money. Uh, but we do know that there are people out there right now listening, people that you and I know of in our own lives or, or just people who are in their cars listening right now. Uh, they live with just kind of this weight of regret in their life. It might mm. be for past choices they've made, missed opportunities, relationships that, uh, that they squandered bad bad decisions made. And, and that weight of regret, whether it be from last week or for 20 years ago, we are all fully aware can just be, uh, it can really hold you back and it can yeah. really kind of become life defining. And so I want to have a little conversation here about What's a word we could give to those people? So it's one thing to laugh at the Bitcoin story. Sure, sure. But what about those people who are trying to get through their day-to-day lives but are just racked with guilt and shame mm. and regret from something, like we said, could have been done uh, decades ago?
2: Yeah, I, I think this is a really important question because so often we can allow our past to sort of imprison us and mm-hmm. not... Uh, move forward because of that, and we—you're right. We can feel a lot of regret and shame and guilt, and you know whatever it is, uh, love lost. You know that can be a whole that can be a whole thing too. Um, I think a good word, and I know I've quoted the scripture on the show before, but you know Psalm thirty-four five: those who look to God are radiant; their faces are never covered with shame. And I think anytime you're feeling those things, it is a moment to just go, okay, Lord, here I am again. I, with all of my regrets, all of my guilt, all of my shame, you have seen it all. You've, you've been in the middle of it all. I invite you to transform me and to help me to move forward and to help me let go. And if there are amends that need to be made, ask the Lord for strength to help you make those amends. If it's something you just need to let go of, I think that's sort of the work of just continuing to put it in God's hands and go okay, Lord, I trust that you're in control over my life. And you knew that was going to happen. You knew this was part of my narrative. And so what? how do you want to redeem it? How do you want to transform me because of it? And trust that God is a good God, not trying to play jokes on you, not trying to withhold from you, a God who lavishly loves his children and will transform everything we allow him to.
0: Absolutely. There's a very well-known verse and it's well-known for a reason out of the book of first John one nine, right? If we, if it's our sin that is causing our regret, if it's our sin that's causing us to not be able to move forward, you know, we read, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. And here's the important part and cleanse us uh, Mm. from all unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. I think a lot of us live our lives as if if we confess our sins. Yeah, God's faithful and just to forgive our sins, but then he's going to hold it over us. Right. He's going right. to keep it there. Uh, but no, the, the, the promise is, is cleansing, right? There's the as far as our sin is, as far as the East is from the West. And that could be hard to, to embrace, uh, on ourselves because there are consequences and, and there, there are reasons for regret, but, uh, but regret doesn't need to be paralyzing. How about for those people, Aubrey, as we close this out? those people for whom regret is just paralyzed it's all they can think about, right? It's all that they can think about. How? What's a first step? How do we start to move forward?
2: Yeah, I think what we have to remember is that we do have a spiritual enemy who Revelation calls the accuser. And so if you Mm. are feeling regret that is paralyzing, that is not God. That is the enemy trying to accuse you and make you think that you are less than who God says you are. And in Ephesians 1, God says that before the foundations of the earth... It pleased him to love you and choose you and purpose you in Jesus Christ. And so I think it's probably time to claim the truth of who you are in Christ to to really get spiritual and like bind the enemy in Jesus' name. Put on your spiritual armor that Ephesians 6 talks about. And remember, it's not your armor. It's God's armor you're putting on and walk in the truth of who you are and do not let that regret keep you imprisoned anymore. Mm.
0: That's a good word. Preaching. That is a good word because, uh, you know, a lot of us do. That regret just sticks there in the back of our minds. And it just kind of runs around like it it weighs us down. And we've got to deal with that. Uh, And not all of it is this grand story of uh, of fortunes, $300 million, (laughs)
1: $300
0: million lost. Uh, But in many ways, it's pain that just keeps us weighed down and holds us back. So, Wanted to have that conversation, especially for those of you who are struggling with regret right now. Hopefully you hear those words, those good words about God. Well, Coming up next, uh, there, the Colorado hospital system has declared pediatric mental health as a state of emergency due to a rising youth suicide in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. This is a really big deal that we've got to get our arms around culturally. We're going to talk about it next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to the Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today on a Thursday afternoon. And Aubrey, we're kind of coming out, fingers crossed here, right? Knock on wood. We are coming out of the COVID 19 pandemic. Things mm-hmm. seem to be normalizing a bit. Uh, the weather 's getting warmer. People are getting vaccinated. Things are reopening. Masks are coming off. so for many uh, there 's there's kind of an anticipation there 's a sense of uh, expectancy coming up. But we have to remember that what we 've all been through uh, is going to leave a wake of of things that need to be dealt with that, that there yeah. is going to be residual effects and with that in mind, especially around the youth of our culture. A really scary um, eye-opening report came out yesterday. And let me just read some of it, and then I would love for you to react. The headline here says this, Colorado hospital system declares, quote, pediatric mental health state of emergency amid rising youth suicide rates. It says at an hmm. unprecedented rate, Colorado children are attempting suicide and arriving in emergency rooms in psychiatric crisis. Alcohol and drug abuse to cope with mental health struggles are also on the rise. The Children's Hospital Colorado system has declared a pediatric mental health state of emergency, with the main campus in Aurora and its many branches all agreeing that the number of mental health problems among children is unprecedented. Hmm. Children in mental health crisis now occupy 12 or 13 beds, and medical staff are clearing out rooms in medical units to make them safe for children who arrive – Threatening suicide. I'm going to pause there. Mm. That's uh, you and I both have kids, yeah. uh, and we've talked about what it's been like in the COVID nineteen t- yeah. uh, kind of season. But Aubrey, that is terrifying. This report that just came out.
2: I mean, it's heartbreaking, and in one sense and when says we sort of all you know we knew i think we've been gearing up for this like uh like all of the effects of the pandemic emotionally to begin to sh- rear their ugly heads and this is one of those things like the kids have been so isolated and this has been so traumatic i think for some kids um, uh, this wow oh, yeah i i don't even have words cuz this is so disturbing i think having having kids myself and anytime suicide attempt That just feels so dark and evil, especially with little ones. Um, I I feel like I keep saying this today, but like, okay, we got to get on our knees and pray about this and do something about mental health for the kiddos, right?
0: Absolutely. It says here, doctors say that it is becoming more common. For children to suffer from panic attacks, heart palpitations, and other symptoms of mental Mm. anguish, Mm. chronic addictions to mobile devices and computer screens, which have become their sitters, teachers, and entertainers during lockdowns, curfews, Mm. and school closures have also become more common. The problem is also hitting hard in other countries. Uh, They talk about a a French psychiatrist here uh, who said there is no prototype for children experiencing difficulties. This concerns all of us, and I think that that gets at kind of the stew, if you will, here, right? Like we've we've had for you know for debatable reasons, I would say, depending on where you land on things, we've uh, kids have been alone and in their homes yeah, and watching yeah. te- watching um, uh, school on their screens, and uh, apart from their kid, uh, their friends, and and you know that's been hard for us as adults, but us as adults, I I think. Have better coping mechanisms. We're we we're able to handle it. When you when you tell a student, a high school kid, a teenager, or even younger, we're going to pull you out of everything you know mm-hmm. and away from the comfort and the, and the uh, what you get out of sociability with your friends. That is uh, going to come with long term effects, and we're seeing. Uh, those effects. So again, Aubrey, you and I are both parents of teenagers yeah. and preteens. And yep. um, you know, if parents out there are seeing this kind of, man, my kid has changed a little bit, or they really seem down or they're struggling, or maybe they're even crying out, I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what do we tell parents? What's not just an encouragement, but maybe what would you do in that situation?
2: Um. You know, it's funny. I actually, I have a friend who's a child therapist, a Christian faithful woman of God. And I actually talked to her about this a few months ago for a number of reasons. And one of her pieces of advice, and actually the article that you read from um, affirms this. And so I think it's worth talking to our listeners about is they say partly Be present in your children's lives, meaning go back to some like preparing family meals together, playing games together, go outside and take a walk together, throw the football around together. Just some of that like interaction. So they're not so isolated. Some of that normalcy of getting away from your screens and being in real life, Um, bring some enjoyment back into their lives. And I think ultimately, you know, if you're out of school that has a social worker, call them, call the pediatrician and get some advice from the pediatrician. Like, don't allow this to just go unnoticed or uncared for or assume it's going to get better. Our kids have been through trauma. And so as parents, we're going to need to... uh, And this is hard because we're tired too, right? But we need to advocate for our little ones so that they can experience the health and wholeness that God has for them. What do you think, Brian, as a parent?
0: Yeah, I think, A... Uh, if if you ever hear your child even hint at suicidal thoughts, you've got to go get professional help. You've got that's it, to, period. Uh, that's yeah. not something you go, oh, you know, let's go out for ice cream or let's go do this. Yeah, thing. yeah.
2: Thank you. Like yeah. that's
0: a whole nother level that you've got to deal with. But I think you're a hundred percent right that uh, our kids need normalcy. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I understand how easy it is, uh, especially when your kids are little to be like, here, watch on the iPod. Here, watch this. Here, totally. do this. Uh, it's not helpful. And, um, in fact, with our, with our teenage kids, when you're de- dealing with social media and stuff, it only compounds the problem. I would say start to embrace also, uh, you know what? If you've been one of these people with your kids who is slow to embrace things opening up, maybe start thinking about ways we've got to kind of speed this up a little bit to ways yeah. that are safe and ways that have been told that we can do. Uh, but the – here, I'll put it this way. The, the only thing that we're, we're – COVID-19 is not the only thing we're trying to protect our kids from right now, right? Yeah. Like we've got to go – you know what? What might be more important if you're one of these people who's like, nope, I don't feel confident even doing what the CDC has said or whatever – what we're seeing now is these, psych- uh, these mental health issues in our kids, I think, are a bigger deal for them than whatever the COVID-19 is going to be in their life. And so you've got to kind of have that conversation with your spouse, with your kids and go, hey, we're going to open this up because they've got to be seeing. They've got to be socializing. They've got to be out doing what's normal. Right. And, and the last thing I would say is this. There is absolutely uh, no um, stigma to going sending your kid to counseling and going to right. counseling with your child, right, right, uh, that 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 is uh, important. That is healthy. That is not a sign of weakness. And so I would do this, Aubrey. As we close this okay. out, what's the? Uh, you and I are both pastors. What's the? Um, what's the call here? Not just the pastors, but youth pastors. You and I have both been youth pastors when I did youth ministry, it was all about pizza and dodgeball, but it feels bigger <laughs> now, right? Like yeah, it, it feels
2: does, doesn't it? more
0: gravity. What would we say to even the youth pastors out there?
2: Yeah. I think check in with the students that you shepherd and you lead, check in with them emotionally, encourage them to be opening up, encourage them to talk to their parents. Um, even if they feel embarrassed to talk to them, parents and don't let I mean, kind of like you said, don't let anything go missed or swept under their rug. Like, take their emotions seriously. And if you need to call 911, call 911. If you need to um, help a child get connected to a therapist or maybe as a youth pastor, you need to be that kind of bridge between parents and the youth that you lead, be that bridge. Um, That's right. And- And I would say take care of yourself in the meantime so that you can pour out to others. But this, I mean, we don't want this to be a state of emergency. We don't want this to be an ongoing crisis. We want our youth to thrive as they're supposed to.
0: Absolutely. A great word right there. This is a big deal. This is one of the lasting effects of all that we've been through in these last 15 or 16 months. And we've got to kind of meet it head on. And take it seriously. Well, we're glad that you're joining us today on this Thursday afternoon. Another hour to go here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.
2: Coming up this hour, how can we get better at empowering women in the church? And author Kelly Flanagan joins us to talk about loneliness, relationships, and more. You're listening to The Common Good.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you joining us today. Uh, so, Aubrey, you alerted me to this. Uh, we we like to every now and then say, what are the articles or the things people are talking about on our news feeds, Twitter, Facebook, whatever else it might be, uh, particularly in the Christian world? Uh, because uh, there was an article flying around yesterday from the Gospel Coalition, Kevin DeYoung. Uh, and as you put it, this blew up yesterday on Twitter uh, yeah. because Kevin DeYoung kind of decided, and, and I was telling you off air, like, love him or hate him, Kevin DeYoung will will dive into the most controversial topics and go, this is what I think. And like, just kind of set the internet Doesn't on fire. Doesn't
2: apologize, <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: yes. And so Kevin DeYoung, and we're not going to get into the article itself, but more the reaction to it. Uh, Kevin DeYoung wrote an article yesterday at the Gospel Coalition – you can go there if you want to read it – called Let Us Reason Together About Complementarianism uh, and basically laying out why he thinks from history, from biblical scholarship, from all sorts of stuff, why complementarianism is the right way for churches, marriages, whatever else it might be, while at the same time saying that he thinks kind of this push against complementarianism uh, is uh, more reactionary to what's going on culturally. Uh, is that uh, here? I'll ask you, since you read the article first, is that a fair assessment of what the young had to say?
2: Yeah, he's just he's essentially just trying to argue for complementarianism in a few different ways yeah yeah which is something he likes to do that's he's a fan of arguing for (laughs) for patriarchy and male dominance but that (laughs) just shows my opinion about it
0: it shows your opinion and so
2: where it got controversial is he yeah it got controversial in a lot of ways but one of the arguments that's often used for women in different forms of leadership in the church is that Paul in Romans 16 greets a woman named Junia, along with a man named Andronicus. I I don't know if that's how you say his name, but saying how they're outstanding among the apostles. And so there are Christians who will use that to say, okay, Paul affirmed a woman as an apostle, a follower of Jesus, a leader in the church, and therefore we see that there are examples of women in church leadership, even in the early church. But what Kevin Young and, and that's been affirmed, I mean, that was affirmed by like first century historians, that was affirmed by the early church, that's been right. affirmed over history, even globally, that's been affirmed. But what Kevin DeYoung says, is says, that's not true.
4: That that
2: Junia or Junius was a man, therefore not an apostle, because Paul would never say that women are apostles. Now, I I put that in my own words. So please read the article to see exactly what Kevin DeYoung says. But um, people went nuts over it because they were like, that's just bad. That's just bad scholarship. That's a bad way to even write an article. And therefore, we can't take him seriously. And I think, you know, we don't need to get into an argument about Kevin DeYoung or complementarianism or whatever. I do think wherever we stand on this theologically, and I certainly stand on one side of the argument, which is pro-women, for women, um, the church has to get better at empowering women. Like, I am so tired of having these conversations. Let's just do better and... I actually wanted to play something, if that's okay for you, Brian. For it. This is a this is an interview that uh, Lisa Bevere did a few years ago on Life Today, where she talks about often what people say to women, and I wanted to play it because you see how absurd sometimes this conversation can get. These are actually things people have said to me as well. So um, we'll t- we'll talk about it after we listen. So let's go ahead and, and play that clip.
4: I've heard people say, "You can talk." Any time, but not Sunday morning. Sunday morning at a pulpit, like okay. somehow that pulpit.
0: Yeah. Well, in our church, we just said you teach, you don't preach.
4: Yeah, please don't. But even no the scripture preaching. that says no, you know no women teaching. are not to teach no, men. You so. share. You, you share. share. Okay. You share. I'm allowed to share. And if sharing gets too strong, then it goes into teaching. And if teaching gets too strong, then maybe I'm shepherding. Then all of a sudden, somehow I'm speaking, and I've become a senior pastor, which is just ridiculous. So you're, so, but
1: you're pointing to context. Okay. Yes. but I think it goes even beyond that in the context because he says it to one particular church yeah. where they had an issue of women coming from a very uh, paganistic culture, right. Disrupting,
4: right? Women were oracles, he, oh, yeah. right? Right.
1: Mm-hmm. He also praised other women who had leadership roles in right. the early church. Right. So, I mean, I, I, when I look at the totality of Scripture and the context of Scripture. I don't see that women are to be uh, a non-issue in the church. In fact, I see just the opposite.
2: Okay, so that's Lisa Bavir basically saying that people will say to women all the time, you're not teaching, you're sharing. You're not sharing, (laughs) you're talking. You're not, you know, And they, they put these like semantics on women to try to keep them in their proper place. And it just gets to the point where it's like outlandish and silly and... I, I think I, you know, I obviously have strong opinions about this. I'm very tired of like sexism disguised as spirituality. I'm, I'm over it. But I do think we, instead of just complaining about it, we can talk about how can the church do better under their own convictions, like live yeah. before the Lord, how you feel convicted and what you feel like the scripture says. But still, how can you push the ball forward for women? So, Brian, I want to put that? you on. Well, I to put you on the spot. How would you answer that? Well,
0: I'm not going to punt here. I would ask – I actually want to know what you think about that because you speak, you yep. write, you're getting these, I'm not. You know what I mean? And yeah, so I, yeah. I would like to ask you just with the little time that we have, how, like you said, some, some of the most godly people I know are convictionally complementarian. Absolutely. They've Same got with their me. reasons for it and yep. I don't think this is a complementarian, bad, egalitarian, good argument right. that even right. you're trying to make. And so, I guess I would ask you, how have you seen it done well, even in a complementarian church? Because yeah. you said the church, just in general, needs to do better at empowering yeah. women, holding them up. And I guess people out there might be wondering, well, how, what does that look like? How is that yeah. best done? Because we want to grow in that.
2: Yeah. Here's how I've seen it done well at complementarian churches. Because I'll say at egalitarian churches, mostly it's done well, not perfectly, but mostly done well. So let's, at, I've seen it done well at complementarian churches when, uh, A senior leader will allow a woman under the authority of the elders at that church to um, preach a sermon, preach part of a sermon, um, even do um, come up and give points following a sermon or in the middle of a sermon. Um, I've seen uh, women be on panels. Um, I have seen women just allowed to even come in and educate the elders or women come in and be allowed to teach different classes. Um, so there are ways we can get women, and listen, children's ministry is one of the most important ministries of the church, but there are a lot of churches out there that don't think women should even be leaving the nursery. Mm-hmm. And so I think we can begin to allow women to have more space in, uh, in children's ministry, in youth ministry, in adult ministry, even on Sunday mornings, and still feel like before God, we are living into the convictions that we have for our what, what we understand for women in church leadership
0: well said and i could tell that you're passionate about this so this is good that's why i <laughs> want to let you talk uh because i think you feel it you you someone who writes and speaks and preaches and uh and and engages with people and so this is this is right there it, it's a topic that's not going to go away it feels like if my twitter feed is any kind of indication it's picking up some steam right now there's a lot of kind of prominent theologians writing on this right now discussing it in some places so i'm sure we will talk again. Well, coming up next, Dr. Kelly Flanagan, uh, founder of the Artisan Clinical Associates and the author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so that you can truly embrace your life. We're going to talk to Dr. Flanagan next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, and on the show, we talk a lot about mental health, especially coming out of COVID-19 as life gets, quote-unquote, a little more normal. Uh, And so we thought it would be great to have back on the show Dr. Kelly Flanagan. Kelly is the founder of Artisan Clinical Associates, Also the author of a book called True Companions, a book for everyone about the relationships that see us through. Kelly, thanks for coming back on. How are you doing today? Brian, I'm I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, it's absolutely our pleasure. Hey, in case people don't remember last time you were on or missed it, why don't you introduce yourself so people can get to know you a little bit better?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm a clinical psychologist, as you mentioned. Uh, founder of Artisan Clinical Associates in Naperville, Illinois. Um, I am married to another clinical psychologist who is also named Kelly, spelled exactly the same way. Uh-huh. So um, <laughs> people people That's tend amazing. to remember us, right? Yeah, um, we we always joke that we're at a disadvantage because people remember our names, but we have a little bit more trouble. So, um, and we have three kids: eight and seventeen, Quinn's thirteen, and Caitlin is eleven, and. Uh, they're all about ready to to wrap up school. Yes. They've been, you know, they've been back in now for a few months, and uh, we we're just, this, you know, talking this week about it. it. Actually, feels like the end of the school year this year, uh, which is sort right, of fun. right, so, um, very exciting.
2: Kelly May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and so I love that you're on today as May is wrapping up. And uh, you wrote an article recently that I really like on your blog. This is your biggest psychological blind spot. I don't know if we want to know the answer to that, but can you can you gently tell us as a therapist does what our biggest blind spots are?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, the, pretty much anything I write there's going to be good news at the end of it. So, the biggest <laughs> psychological <laughs> blind spot I I would argue is also our most beautiful one, but mm-hmm. I mean, I think our blind spots start with, you know, we have hard things happen to us. Uh we go through painful experiences. And and our our sort of reaction to pain and to hardship is to resist it. And and one of the ways that we resist it psychologically is sort of like is sort of putting some of those experiences we almost keep secrets from ourselves, basically. We sort of put them in places psychologically where we don't have to pay much attention to them or feel them or think through them. And so a lot of our pain and injuries sort of pile up. And Mm. in, in my experience, a big part of the healing process is just simply having a space, for instance a therapy room, where you can safely start to move back towards those painful experiences and through them and uh, and so they become they, they move from blind spots to sort of reworked um, and reimagined uh, difficult experiences and then what you discover is that underneath all of that pain is who you really are mm-hmm. and it is really good news it is beautiful, it is worthy of love and belonging but it's sort of also got buried beneath all of the pain and self-doubt and self-criticism that ensues. So Mm. our biggest psychological blind spot is our true self, worthy of love and belonging, but we're so disconnected from it because of all the pain that that sort of comes between us.
0: Oh, it's fascinating. And Kelly, what happens then for people when they don't deal with their pain, when they don't deal with what's happened in the past? What then is the result in our lives?
1: You know, probably one of my my most important learnings when it comes to like sort of emotional intelligence is that the difference, there's a difference between pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, That pain is sort of the inevitable experience of being human. You're going to go through hard things and you're going to experience pain, but suffering is all the consequences of resisting that pain. Right, mm-hmm. so um, the ways that we we use substances and distractions and relationships and the ways we overwork and obsess in order to not feel that original pain, that all becomes just layers and layers of suffering piled on top of that pain. So, um, I, the the good news, ironically, is hey, uh, we can remove mo- most of your suffering. Um, just by not resisting that pain, and then all that's left is the is the inevitable part of of just being human and having to go through life, and and that's manageable. It's mm-hmm. the suffering that we pile on top of it that becomes unmanageable.
2: Oh, that's that's so interesting, um, Kelly. We just talked about earlier in the show kind of the rise in mental health issues for kids, especially coming out of the pandemic, and uh, it, you know it's not a surprise to anyone to know that. It seems like because of the pandemic, there's been an increase in anxiety and fear and isolation and things like that, that we keep talking about. I guess I'm just wondering if there's a, if there's a listener who's on and is hurting right now, is struggling with some of those things right now, what would you offer to them?
1: Yeah. Well, so the good news here is that because we have two Kellys in the house uh, we are psychologists, <laughs> uh, I, uh, I have the perspective that I bring to adults who are going through um anxiety and stress right now um and then I also get to hear her perspective about um how to how to assist kids through times like this right. and you know the good news is that when we when she and I talk essentially it's the same psychological principles for both um adults and kids and and I think the first one that, and you just sort of did it for us Aubrey which is great which is just normalizing it um mm-hmm. uh, you know, so again, we're having we're having normal pain, which is anxiety, for instance, or maybe even social anxiety about getting back together with people, but a layer of suffering that we can layer on that pain is, ooh, there's something wrong with me. I'm weird, I'm broken, I'm bad, you know. Hmm. Um and so normalizing it helps us to not add that layer of suffering to it. Um I remember it was probably I mean, it's over a year ago now, but like, remember those first couple of months where we weren't really seeing anybody? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And, and I remember um, a few of my guy friends and I finally decided like, come on, we can at least sit out in the driveway together, like on a Friday night, you know, and, and enjoy each other a little bit. And so it was like, maybe it had been almost like two months since I'd really been in the presence of anyone besides my family. And uh, I remember he he walked up the driveway and we and we got our lawn chairs out. We're sitting there talking, and I remember feeling nervous.
4: Mm-hmm. And go
1: and and at first going like, what is wrong with me? Like, what's going on here? This is Ben. This is my buddy. Like, um, and then I'll being able to say, oh, like this is social. This is social anxiety because even if you're very socially skilled, skills require practice and we haven't mm. had any practice in, in months. And, and so it's, uh, it's a little stressful to get out there and start practicing being social again. And and so I think what you just did is a big piece of it is just normalizing it and saying, yes, like this is going to be stressful getting back out there. Um, you know, we're, we're also carrying back out into the world, as you mentioned, Aubrey, all of the, the sort of loneliness and the, the, some of the depression that's gone with the way life has changed. Right. And so there's just a lot we're carrying even back yeah. out into those interactions um, that we need to be aware of and normalize as well.
0: Yeah. And Kelly, Kelly's going to stay with us. We're going to talk about his uh, book, True Companions, a book for everyone about the relationships that see us through. But Kelly, I did want to ask you one more uh, question about uh, coming out of COVID right now. Yeah. What about kids? Like We, we all have kids yes. and kids. Are, this has been so hard, such a difficult year. What would you say to the parent who looks at their kid right now and is like, man, my kid is struggling, anxiety, maybe depression, maybe even something worse. What would you say to that parent? What what do they do?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, as parents, our our natural tendency is to get anxious ourselves and start (laughs) to extrapolate into the future, right? Like, oh, no, like this could turn into something worse. Um, Right. And so you don't want to under – Sort of, sort of minimize it, but you also don't want to act, uh, respond to it with your own anxiety. I think right now, if it's social stuff, it's you know helping your kids start small, mm-hmm. um, identifying one friend or their most comfortable person to to begin hanging out with again. If it's um, you know if if they're resistant to it. The, the, the fuel for anxiety is resistance and avoidance. And so you want to sort of gently encourage them and nudge them and actually sort of require them to begin making those social connections again. Um, so starting small, um, disrupting that avoidance, and really sort of making great use of this window of summertime that we have to be in charge of their own choices about interactions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Again, Dr. Okay. Kelly Flanagan is the founder of Artisan Clinical Associates, Also, the author of a book that we're going to talk about here coming up next, True Companions, a book for everyone about the relationships that see us through. You can learn more about Kelly at drkellyflanagan.com. Kelly, uh, as you mentioned, we talked a lot about the anxiety of of coming out of COVID-19 for kids, for adults, a lot of social anxiety and what to do about it. Uh, But what about people who are legitimately just depressed right now? Like this is just ground them down? What What's a word of hope, but also a next step for those people
1: uh, who are struggling with depression right now? Yeah, well, the, the word of hope is, I'll tell you what we're seeing in our practice. Uh, we saw like a, just an upwelling of need for services from January until about two weeks ago. And mm-hmm. then our, our phone lines got a little quieter. And And so that that's the hope there is that as we move into summertime, as places are opening up, the hope is that people are going to begin to get access again to the sorts of things that improve their mood. That that's what was so hard about this is that's like, right. typically as a therapist, when someone's going through a hard time, you say, okay, what are your go-to moves? Like what? And they say, well, going to the gym. It's like, oh, well, okay, you can't do that. Um, mm. Getting together with a good friend. Oh, well, you can't do that. Going to a coffee shop and having a quiet. Oh, well, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> so I think there's wow. a legitimate hope returning that the things that that. Sort of buffer us against some of the harder things in life. Are we're going to get those opportunities again? Um, but then there are going to be those of us who the depression is going to linger, um, yeah. and and that's okay too. I mean, one there are many forms of depression, and one of them that I think we're seeing in. The, the kind of depression I'm thinking of is the kind that comes from being emotionally exhausted. That's right. Like it's not a, it's not necessarily a deep sadness. It's sort of, it's an exhaustion that comes from managing all the other stress of life. Hmm. And when you think about like that, every time you have to make a tough decision in life, it's stressful. And you think about how many more tough micro decisions were added to our lives over the last year. Like, Oh, Oh, do I walk down? Is it the green arrow in the grocery store or the <laughs> red arrow? Like, these crazy things that we were having to think about all the time. We're emotionally yeah. exhausted. And uh, and so I think it's an important time for people to be taking care of themselves um, in by adding back in enjoyable activities if they can. But also, you know, by having a space where you can take care of yourself emotionally. So for a lot of people that might be calling up a therapist and that's what a lot of people are doing right now. Just an hour yeah. a week where you get to attend to your own emotional inner world and start to recover your energy. So mm-hmm. I think that's important.
2: Oh, it's so good. Such a good word for all of us right now, Kelly. Hey, I want to transition a little bit to talk about your new book, True Companions, which I have had a chance. got to read an early copy of this book and it is beautiful. Um, also, just a little shout out to your first book, Lovable, about overcoming and healing from shame, which is amazing too. But um, True Companions, We need true companionship more than ever. Can you talk to us about why you wrote this book?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I thought when, well, I mean, I wrote it for one reason and uh, ended up releasing it into a different world. Um, Mm. And and the reason I wrote it in part was because um, I think think at the time it felt like we needed to be called um, back into the richness and the value of analog companionship of, of having people in our lives, in our space, um, that can walk with us through, through anything that's happening in life. And I wanted to talk about some of the, the the things that get in the way of cultivating those lifelong relationships, how those relationships end up turning into, to conflict rather than nourishment. um, But what was interesting was by the time I released it in February of this year, everyone was totally aware of this, (laughs) you know, (laughs) we were no no longer under the illusion (laughs) that, um, a bunch of Facebook likes were going to make me feel like a connected and loved person, um, and, uh, and so in a way I feel like the book entered into a world that was sort of primed for it. Um, so now it's, it's sort of, uh, affirming what people have learned over the last year is that, you know, we need people in flesh and blood. Um, we yeah. need people that we can call upon in hard times. We need people that are holding the memories of everything we've gone through with us. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, and so, yeah, so I, 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 I wrote it thinking it was in some ways a wake up call and instead it became an affirmation of what we've all sort of learned over the last year.
0: Yeah, and and Kelly, I think what a lot of us struggle with, just because of the busyness of life now, as we come out of COVID, is uh, it's just surface level relationships, right? I got lots of people in my life, but maybe I don't have lots of companions or friends. Uh, what are the steps that take take relationships, in your opinion, from that surface level? Hey, how
1: you doing? To having kind of a more uh, depth of relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Someone asked me yesterday, hey, how you doing? I go, awesome. And I go, oh, wait, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> that's,
4: <laughs> that's,
1: that's just what we say. Um, I'm slightly above average today is actually the truth. Um, so uh, so yeah, I think, and, and this goes back to the idea that uh, comes full circle back to the idea of our biggest blind spot, which is our true self. And for me, I, I think that there are there are three important realities in every human life. It's that you came into the world with a self that was created for you, and it is beautiful and worthy of love and belonging. And at some point, you experienced a particular kind of pain that is called shame. And it was a message you picked up along the way that you weren't worthy of love and belonging exactly the way you were. And so all of us, you know, kids usually by third or fourth grade, are already building a second self a false self that they think will protect them from more shame and pain and earn them the love and belonging that they so badly want. And so, so much of true connection and building true companionship is beginning to let go of that false self, recognize it not as the real you, but as the you, 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 you developed because you needed to at the time and to reconnect with that true self, that big, beautiful blind spot within us and live from it, show up from it. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I'm working with, uh, people on a lot right now is creating a moment of choice in their lives. You know, I think Viktor Frankl said between every stimulus and response, there's a moment of choice. And so we, hmm. we create a moment of choice by saying, what's the show you're putting on right now? Hmm. What's the mask you're putting on right now? What's the false self you're putting on right now? And if you can observe it in that moment of observation, you've just created a choice for yourself. Do I keep hmm. doing that? Or do I, do I recognize what I really want to say right now, um, how I'm really showing up to this moment? And then the challenge is to to have the courage to do that. And and companionship begins when you have the courage to do that. And someone sees it and goes, ooh, I dig that. Like, that's the hmm. real you. I celebrate that. Can I, can I have more of that? And that is the beginning. That's sort of the seed of true companionship.
2: Mm, That's really good. Kelly, um, for people who may be listening, and they have heard us talk about shame on the show, they've heard you talk about it for the last few minutes. And they're like, I don't know what shame is, or I don't know how to recognize when I feel it. What are just some of those signposts that they can go, oh, here's that thing he was just talking about?
1: Yeah. So shame has all sorts of ways of manifesting in our lives, behaviorally, sort of, and even in our bodies. But one of the more obvious ways is two tapes that play in our heads. Um, and so these two tapes repeat, (laughs) um, and, uh, they are, I'm not blank enough Mm. or, or I am too blank. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, uh, I think I shared in lovable, I went through a, um, A continuing education weekend where they helped us to identify how we filled in that blank. And for me, it was I'm not interesting enough. I'm just Mm. not interesting. I'm boring. People are going to lose interest in me. They're going to leave me. I'm not worthy of love and belonging the way I am. I'm not interesting enough. Um, For others, it might be I'm too talkative. I'm too boisterous. I'm too quiet. I'm too. um, So if you can begin to recognize one of those two tapes or both of those tapes playing in your head, you've sort of identified the doorway into your shame. Um, Mm -hmm. And then usually it's helpful to have someone sort of walk with you through that doorway and understand more about where it came from um, and how you can begin to experience it, not as the truth about you, but as the deception about you, Um, Mm -hmm. the the lie that was told about you a long time ago. Um, I tell Mm -hmm. my kids, hey, if I shame you, don't believe me. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, if I'm not telling
1: the truth about who you are as a person, don't buy it, you know, but a lot of us bought it and it became our reality and we need to, to tap into a deeper, more beautiful reality within us. Oh,
0: that's good. Dr. Kelly Flanagan, founder of Artisan Clinical Associates, also the author of a book, True Companions, a book for everyone about the relationships that see us through. You can learn more about Kelly at Dr. dot com. That's Dr. Kelly Flanagan. Lanigan.com. Kelly, it's always great to have you on, man. Thanks for doing yeah, great this. Great to have you. Brian Aubrey, thank you. This is great. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. All good work. And you're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us as we close out this Thursday afternoon. Aubrey, I could see Memorial Day weekend coming. It is like...
2: It's coming!
0: It is within our grasp. It is, That's right. it is there. And uh, so looking forward. To I know you guys are off to do a wedding.
2: Yep, we're off to do a wedding. We're bringing our kids, going to stay at a hotel. I'm hoping the pool's open so they can swim. The uh, what about you? What are open. you guys doing? The right, pool I hope is so.
0: Going to be open. There's no doubt. And I, isn't it amazing when your kids are especially younger? Just the joy of being in a hotel.
2: It uh, it seriously doesn't even matter where it is. Just like you're at a hotel, you're not at home, and it's so fun.
0: I remember when my kids were really little. So maybe my oldest was like ten at the time, or whatever. Uh, we literally went and stayed in a hotel five minutes from our house. Just no, you fun. did it. Just yes. to get a break. I feel like that's for the, the mom as
2: much as, yeah, it's the mom as much as the kids, like, just get out for a bit.
0: So it was to have a night, like you said, with nothing pressing. But then, to be honest with you, it was just to be in a pool. It was the middle of winter. Uh, and I'm not kidding. It was five minutes from my house. <laughs> and I was like, we're going to a <laughs> hotel. woo <Woo-hoo! laughs>
3: That's awesome. So
0: funny. We are going to do – we are going to – my nephew is in a musical, I think, this weekend. So we're oh, going to see fine. that.
2: That's cool. My son,
0: of course, has a baseball tournament. We'll be doing that. and uh, But I do think – for the first time, uh, like the start of summer, we're going to go to my sister in law, brother in law's house, and swim in their pool and enjoy. Oh wow, uh, that's summer. fun! Just it's the beginning of summer. So wait, I
2: need fun. to ask you a question: Is your nephew in the uh production of High School Musical at Wheaton Academy?
0: Yes, you and I do live in the. <laughs> same
2: Brian, are you he excited is, about that?
0: He is not. Yeah, he, uh, he is one of the few like guitar players in like the pit, like where okay, all gotcha, the okay, gotcha, gotcha, learn. He had to learn an obscene amount of music. Wow. <laughs> so,
2: wow. Well, I, yeah. you know, we're talk- we've are we talked about our favorite musicals, and High School yeah. Musical is one of yours. So I thought you might will be. Will you, you, you be going? Dec- I guess
0: you're out of town, so you will not yeah, be going. Yeah, I
2: can't go. I'm, I'm sad. Although I've <laughs> seen it live. So I hope you have a great time.
0: We will report back because my standards are high on High School Musical, so. We'll
2: see how it goes.
0: (laughs) My standards are. Well, whenever we end the show, we like to do so with some encouragement, some put a smile on your face, but also some challenge. And so uh, a couple stories here. We'll see how many we get to. But this one really stuck out to me from the Christian Post why a 24-year-old left her dream job to mobilize Americans to march for persecuted Christians. When Gia Chacon's heart began to break for persecuted Christians at a young age, she knew God was calling for her to be part of the solution. This prompted her to launch her nonprofit organization to host the first ever march to stand in solidarity with the persecuted church last year in California, which was attended by hundreds. And as, as estimates suggested, over 340 million Christians live in areas that face persecution. Another March for the Persecuted will be held this summer. It wow. goes on to talk about how she decided to devote her life after traveling to Egypt and seeing the Egyptian Christians. She decided to uh, devote her life and she became compelled To do something about this, she Mm -hmm. launched an organization called For the Martyrs, a nonprofit that provides aid through food, clothing, transportation and Bibles and advocates for persecuted uh, Christians. And so, Aubrey, we both saw this story went, man, that's a we we talk about following your passion and doing stuff outside the box and doing things that are probably even scary. Right. She left a job uh, that she loved. Uh, But this awareness that, no, there's all these persecuted Christians around the world, and I I need to do something about it. And her being so compelled to take that chance and to step out like that, I find that to be both compelling, but also really challenging at the same time.
2: Yeah, really convicting. That's what I was thinking. Here she is young and just kind of saying, like, no, I'm doing what God has called me to do. I'm not going to make any excuses, and I am going to raise awareness For uh, Christians who are being persecuted, what she talks about, I didn't even know this. She says in this article that Christian persecution is growing every year, but also Christians are the most persecuted religious group. Yes, And I think that's really interesting. So she's raising awareness. She's doing these marches. She's been to the White House. And so this is inspiring and challenging, like you said. Yep. And a reminder
0: about the persecuted church, something we try to do here on this show often is remind us. That that Christianity is just not an American thing or a Western yeah. thing, but it is global. And like you said, there is a great amount of persecution. The other thing we wanted to highlight, uh, I feel like we've been doing this a lot lately, and I really enjoy it, is highlighting uh, important people in in kind of Christianity, but who are kind of unknown to most of us who have passed away and just kind of honoring their lives. Uh, and so uh, this is about an archaeologist by the name of Eilat Mazar, uh, was a very famous archaeologist. In 50 years of, ex- of excavation, she connected modern Israel to Hebrew kings and prophets. And so, Aubrey, this is somebody who I've never heard this name, probably most of us have never heard this name, but has done a lot to advance uh, the ball, especially in the world of archaeology.
2: Yeah. We, uh, she was apparently not a religious archaeologist, but what was interesting is she like, they say that she dug with a shovel in one hand and a Bible with the other. She was called the Queen of Jerusalem Archaeology, and she actually took the Bible really seriously as a historical text. We actually have a little clip of her talking that I want us to hear just because I think it's amazing the, the life that this woman led.
4: The horde was found in a Byzantine structure where It is just 50 meters south of the southern wall of the Temple Mount and the triple gate where the Jewish people in the second temple period went in. And here it was found just under a surface layer. The hoard was separated into two major packages. One that was a bit better hidden contained the medallion and the necklace, another small medallion and this uh, holder of what seems to be the Torah scroll. Some fabric that was found on this uh, holder uh, probably held them all together. The other purse of the items that were found all around in nearby, but still scattered, contained 36 coins, the earrings, heavy earrings, most probably a property of some wealthy woman, uh, the silver ingot and another hanger of such a bracelet that was broken. So that's why it was kept in the other purse.
2: Okay, so that was just her talking about an ancient, you know, treasure that they found. But this is another woman who gave her life to say, I mean, I think this is so fascinating. Like, she gave her life, not as a religious person, but would like pour over scripture as she did these archaeological digs.
0: Yeah, and she had her critics. I'm reading them right right now as we go. Some people uh, didn't like her methods, but... But it says you cannot study biblical archaeology uh, without uh, recognizing her work. And uh, I, I remember I got to spend the summer, I told you this, I spent the summer uh, when I was in college in Israel, thing called so Week cool. in the Holy Lands. Oh, it was the greatest summer of my life. And uh, spent a month in Israel, uh, like 10 days in Greece and maybe five days in Rome and got college credit for it. Uh, and so it was unbelievable. But one of the things you realize is the amount of archaeological digs going on. Wow, and, really? Oh, still in the painstaking ways that they are in the things they've uncovered almost every you know uh, city that we went to and we we visited, they were still actively digging, which is just a fascinating uh, just yeah. even premise that that they're still uncovering things and still doing this. Uh, and this woman was one of the leaders in it, I don't know. I, I find archaeology. Uh, to be fascinating, not just because of the Indiana Jones movies, but because of... <laughs>
2: but mostly of because of the Indiana Jones movies. No, no I, true I'm i with you. I think it's so cool, too, when we find that things we read about in Scripture, when they discover those places or they discover documents, because it just increases your faith, I think. Like sometimes this, the world of the Bible feels so far away, especially for those of us who haven't been to Israel. And so when some of these things are uncovered, you're like... Wow, these stories are true. That's so, so incredible. So, I, yeah, I'm encouraged by this. This is cool.
0: So, we wanted to end the show that way, uh, just with some encouragement. Keep you thinking as we head off into our days. And we're glad we'll be with you tomorrow, one more day before Memorial Day weekend. Right. Join us on Friday. Uh, rumor is there may even be a top five list coming up. There might that, be. You better join anything, to find out. If we know anything about the top five lists, yours are going to be terrible. And so I look forward to that.
2: (laughs) We're fabulous and amazing. So we'll see how that goes. (laughs) All a matter
0: of perspective. So join us tomorrow from four until six for Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.